If you're just joining us, you, you came in on the ground floor. We're going to go from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 5, verse by verse. And so we look forward to this uh, very wonderful book of 1 John. Now, Father God, as we turn our attention toward your living word, we ask that your living Holy Spirit, who resides in our hearts and in our minds, can help us make sense of this, these truths which are spiritually understood. We pray, Father, that you'd open the eyes of our understanding, that you'd quicken us, spiritually speaking, to, to be able to grasp and understand and put into practice these words of life so that we could be blessed and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, many years ago now, I was one of the first to arrive on the scene of a serious accident just on uh, Highway 101 on the outskirts of Petaluma. It was 5 o'clock in the morning, still dark, very foggy. I was commuting to work. Um, up ahead of me was a real glow of orange lighting the pre-dawn sky, flames shooting up so high from the engine of this car that was in the middle of the freeway. I stopped and got out, and there was only another man who also was there on the scene, and uh, we went over to a man who was lying on his back uh, in the middle of the lanes, unconscious, and so, without talking to one another, the two of us walked over, saw him, and knelt down, and he led in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for this man here. It was just amazing that we hadn't talked. He didn't know I was a pastor. I didn't know he was a Christian. And uh, just, uh, we were there ministering to him in prayer, and in a few moments, the paramedics arrived, and the scene is so vividly etched in my mind. Uh, as we stepped aside, he said, and these are his words, gentlemen, let me assess the situation. And I watched him very in a fascinating way, just slowly, methodically, and very skillfully assess signs of life. The first thing he did was thrust his fingers to the man's neck was paying attention. The next thing he did was put his head to his chest to listen for respiration. First the pulse, then the respiration. Next, he forced his eyelids open and flashed his light from side to side, watching intently how the pupils reacted to the light. It was really uh, intriguing to watch him. He was so calm. He knew exactly what to look for, for the signs of life. In the late 19th century, an English scholar by the name of Robert Law wrote a commentary on 1 John, which he entitled, The Tests for Signs of Life, Spiritually Speaking. Now, as we look to a new study here in 1 John, I think it's a pretty good way to think about this endeavor. Just as medics test for pulse, brain activity, and breathing for physical life, 
So there are tests to give ourselves and to apply to others to check for signs of spiritual life, to verify whether or not there are signs that Christ, the living God, has come into a person's life. There are signs to verify that a person has experienced the new birth, uh, apart from which Jesus said, no man shall ever enter heaven without. There are signs to verify whether or not a person is saved, as we coined the phrase saved, or in simple terms, going to heaven or not. And so 1 John focuses on these markers, these signs to figure out can we get a spiritual pulse on the guy? And there's ways to find out, and John is going to tell you, but he does so in a very positive way. He doesn't do it to say, examine yourselves to see if you're saved. He does this for these people in this context. He's saying, examine yourselves and realize that you have been saved. Well, what's going on? Well, the, one of the purposes of the letter, 1 John 5.13, the thesis statement comes a little late, uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The context, the false teachers, uh, now 25 years after Peter was writing and has passed away, 25 years after the book of Acts is finished, John is dealing with those same false teachers and teaching. Uh, some of the Christian leaders had left the Christian fellowship and Christian orthodoxy, and they started their new communities, communities of faith, spiritual enlightenment called Gnosticism. They left the Christian communities, and those who were left behind were shaken they were the odd men out. I mean, they um, had developed, the Gnostics had re developed this new gospel because the old one was so restrictive. It was culturally irrelevant. It was called primitive by those who were now enlightened. It was oppressive and exclusive to so many people. It was so narrow. And so they said, let's broaden that whole concept and come up with this enlightenment. And that's what they were dealing with. And so everybody who stayed behind, clinging to primitive orthodoxy, old school, old fashioned, who were being mocked and ridiculed by those who left, especially leaders, they were shaken. So John says, let, let me point out that you folks are the ones who have signs of life, and they don't. And so he's going to just make it really simple here to bring comfort. He's a pastor. He knows they're upset. He's going to do what any pastor should do, is to address the concerns that are upsetting God's people. And, you know, I like what Jude says in verse 3 of his one-chapter epistle. Dear friends... I must urge you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people. Meaning, the gospel in the form that it came through God's apostles and disciples is eternal. It is unchanging because it speaks of the unchanging nature of God and of sin 
and how to get to heaven. Those things never change. What changes is how we present it, maybe, but the truths never change. You don't mess with the pillars, and that's what they were doing. Second Peter, remember in his letter, he denounced and exposed the false teachers, how? With fire and brimstone. He painted a picture of them. He, he unmasked them. He said, these guys are greedy, and they're embezzlers, and they're motivated by selfish ambition, and they're liars. Fire and brimstone. Well, John, in his first letter here, will denounce and expose the false teachers by simply defining the truth in such childlike ways that a second grader can read 1 John. In fact, how many of you have told a new believer, why don't you start in the book of 1 John? How many of you have ever done that? Quite a few of you. That's the primer of Christianity is 1 John. So simple. Martin Luther said this, the reformer in the 1500s, I have never read a book written in simpler words than this one, and yet the words are inexpressibly profound. And so here's what he's going to do. He's, he's going to so bluntly just say, this is the sign. You got the sign, you got the life. You don't have the sign, you don't. Period. And everybody's like, but, 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 but. no buts. He's black and white. He is not gray. He just says, uh, this is the sign. You love your brother? You're in. You hate your brother? You're out. <laughs> That's what he says. And uh, we will see some of these things. He talks about signs of walking in the light, a correct understanding of who Jesus is, the sign of morally excellent lives, transformation, loving our brothers, doing the right thing, these kinds of things. And so we're going to dive in now, but uh, he just lays it out so calmly, simply, and methodically. These are the signs of eternal life coursing through the system of your soul. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. We're going to stop there. That is going to be our text to consider this morning. Uh, let's think of it this way. It divides nicely verses 1 and 2, checking for a pulse. You'll find out if you have a pulse right away, 1 and 2. And also checking for respiration, for breathing, 3 and 4. And so first, getting a pulse. Well, of course, he starts with Jesus because he is God. He is the one who can raise somebody from the dead. He is the one who created all things and, of course, the source of all life. So he starts with Jesus. You've got to know who Jesus is, his biblical identity, since it is he and he alone who gives eternal life. 
You gotta know that you have the right person. Jesus said to his enemies, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders in John chapter five and verse 29. He says, you guys, you diligently study the Bible because you think by doing that you have life. The Bible testifies of me, yet you refuse to come to me to find life. Okay, so now we know. Jesus himself is saying that he is the source of granting forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is not through the scriptures or through knowledge or good deeds or anything religious. You must have a personal encounter with him and not somebody else, not somebody who uses his name, who looks like him or sounds like him, or is reported to be him in another form. Just him. Somebody told me once, you call him Allah, I call him Allah, you call him Jesus. It's the same thing, and I said, I have a question for you. Does your Allah have wounds on his body that you can see? No, he doesn't. He doesn't have any wounds. Well, then he's not my Jesus. And you don't have my Jesus because my Jesus comes with wounds in his hands and his feet and his side and his back because that's how he purchased our salvation according to the Bible. Jesus himself, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. I am the truth. I, I am the life. No one, nobody, not one soul will ever come to the Father and go to heaven but through me. Therefore, now we know the importance of finding a pulse. It means you've got to know who this life giver is. Because if you've got the wrong guy, you've got the wrong thing. And you won't have what he's offering in eternal life. I got a voicemail on Friday. I got a call from North Carolina. I didn't recognize it, so I let it go to voicemail like all of you do. <laughs> and here's the voicemail. Hey, Rob. Calling to see if you got a battery for a 2004 Nissan Altima. Give me a call, 555-1212. He left the number. She left the number. Number one, I'm not Rob. <laughs> Close. R-O. And then there is a hard left hand to a B. <laughs> Wrong. OK, you needed an S and another S. Then we'd be talking, OK, maybe. Number two, I don't have a battery for your Ultima. I have a hard time knowing what one is. I don't even know what an Ultima it looks like. And if I had one, you'd be looking at the wrong person to help you there. I am the furthest thing from a mechanic than you ever gonna find on the whole earth. When the car stops, I'm like, okay, who do I call? <laughs> you know, it's usually something like, well, have you put gas in it? Uh, okay. The new gospel redefined Jesus and changed his phone number. So if you're expecting, uh, number one, a created being, because he starts out here saying, by the way, first of all, he's God, he's eternal, he's with the Father. Before the earth was, he was there with God, creating everything. 
So if you tell me that your Jesus had a start, that he was a created being like the Jehovah's Witness do, do, they say that he had a start, that God created him. You got the wrong number because he just said he has no beginning. He is the beginning. In Revelation, Jesus says, I'm the A, I'm the Z. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. I'm the first, I'm the last. I'm the author, I'm the finisher, and everything in between, because he's God. If you're telling me that you think he's a good moral teacher, that he was born, he's just a human being, he doesn't have an eternity past, uh, that he's not God, he's simply a prophet, or he's an enlightened, uh, one of the circle of divinations. He's like Buddha, and he's like Krishna, and all of these things. Say, you know what, pal? You've got the wrong number, biblically speaking. You can, in America, have any belief you want. But if you want a biblical one, you're going to have to accept a biblical view of who Jesus Christ is, or you will not get the biblical benefit of what that Jesus Christ offers. You cannot just make things up and say, well, you call him this and I call him that. That's not going to work. There's a big difference between getting into a, uh, an emergency situation and dialing 611 instead of 911. <laughs> you're, you're not going to be helped in the same way. And so they're saying, just dial 611. There's three numbers. What's a, so it's a six, it's not a nine. Well, that's going to determine whether you live or die, according to the Bible. We're looking for a pulse here, and you better have a Jesus as God, fully God. So what does it say there? It says he's beyond the vanishing point. That's in the Greek for um, from the beginning. In other words, looking to the past so far that you, it vanishes because it's eternally that way. He always was. I love the Lord. 500 years before Joseph and Mary ever got set up on a first date. 500 years before that, the Lord, first person, speaking through the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, says this paraphrase. But you, Bethlehem, you may be a tiny little village, but out of you will come for me the ruler over Israel who has existed before he was born from eternity past. In other words, he'll be born in Bethlehem, but FYI, he doesn't have a start there in a manger. He always was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and that word became a human being. The Greek word is fascinating for word, who God is ascribed to, logos, L-O-G-O-S. And the Greek understanding of that word is that it was the power which puts sense into our reality, making the world orderly instead of chaotic. The logos was the power that set the world in perfect order and kept it going. They saw the Logos as the ultimate reason, the source of all wisdom and knowledge and light, the source of spirit, and the reason that controlled the universe. That thing, that spark that, that makes consciousness possible, the, the essence of the coreness of life. What is that? And Jesus says, John says, perfect. That's Christ. 
That's Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. Now, we need to just spend a couple minutes talking about how the Father and the Son are linked together. And now we're going to talk about the Trinity because he says there in your text that he was with the Father in the beginning. Now, how does that happen? That's in verse 2, by the way. Jesus says all the time, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you're in essence seeing me. I and the Father are one. They're always linked together. Grace and peace be yours through God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The names are always linked together. You've got Jesus on the night he was betrayed at the Last Supper saying, you guys, don't be afraid. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Can you imagine Paul the Apostle saying that? Or Peter. Peter saying, hey, guys, trust in God. Trust also in me. Grace and peace be unto you in the name of our Father in heaven and Peter. You cannot link a human name in eternal relationship with the living God and not be equal to God himself. Well, how can two be one like that? Well, it's something called the Trinity. It means that God exists in a Godhead form as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, 26, I'm going to make this easy. So don't check out yet. You've got to give me 4.3 seconds, minutes, <laughs> whoa, or hours, as the case may be. Genesis chapter 1, let's just make this very easy, Trinity 1A, all right? Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. What? Who are, we ta- who are we talking about here? And, and so there's something about us in our createdness that reflects who he is, right? Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our gods is one. Elohim. El is God. Elohim is God's. The word for God in the Old Testament, one of them, is God's, and always with a singular verb, is. The God's is one. In other words, he's triune, but he's one. Now, the key to this for me, easy way to understand it to me, is I am three parts, body, soul, and spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says, you got three parts, but you do not walk around unless you have some problems talking about yourself as three. You talk about yourself as one, right? In fact, my soul is not my spirit, and my spirit is not my soul, and my soul is not my body but I am one, like he is. If you separate me, body and soul, you don't have me in this form anymore. I will be dead. I will not be the person that you know. You cannot, John will say in this epistle, you cannot have the Father without the Son, and he who has the Son has the Father. They are a package plan. 
Then Jesus will say, go into all the earth and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name, name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Peter the Apostle. No. <laughs> Father, Son, and Paul. Father, Son, and George. Father, Son, in the name, one name, of Father, Son, and Spirit. The three are one. That is who Jesus is. He's the second person of the Godhead, the fathers we've seen sending and loving. Jesus coming and dying, the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us and filling us. Three persons, one God. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God as he is revealed. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is why... Jesus is now introduced to you in these couple verses as the God-man. He's fully equal in every way to God. And I love how he points that out uh, to people. Just, you know, the story. It gets a lot of uh, airtime with me. It's the what, paralyzed man who comes through the roof. He's let down in front of Jesus. And uh, uh, the Lord says, uh, okay, number one. First biggest problem, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees gasp, and they say, who can forgive sins except God himself? And Jesus says, exactly. Now, let me show you that I am God, and I have that authority. Because he says, now, it would be really easy, wouldn't you agree, for me to just say, oh, you, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> wouldn't that be easy? He says, which would it be easier? Uh, pronouncing some guy's forgiveness, which you can't see or verify, or me saying to somebody who is born paralyzed, hey, get up and walk, which would be easier? Well, it would be first just to say, oh, your sins are absolved, because we can't tell. But he says, so that you know that I am God, and I can do what I just said, then I say to you, get up, pick up that mat, carry it at home, get out of here, go away. And he probably didn't say, go away, but he did tell him to get up. And the guy got up and he said, see, I just did that to show you who I am. He was always telling him that. When the Pharisees, another one of my favorite stories, John chapter 8, the last part of it, proving that he was God himself, they said, you know what? You're an illegitimate son because we know about Mary. <laughs> Our father is Abraham. And Jesus says, you know what? Speaking of Abraham, he says, I know Abraham. Abraham knows me, and he was very delighted to meet me. <laughs> and so he's, they say, now we know you're demon-possessed. You're crazy men. And they say, end of John 8, you're not even 50 years old. And you're saying that you met Abraham, and Abraham met you. And then Jesus says, before Abraham existed, I not was, but I am. The Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am of the burning bush, the Yahweh, I am. That's me, he says. Oh, yeah, 2,000 years ago? Oh, but before that, I've always existed. That would be me. Jesus Christ, the word of God, eternal life, the source 
of all energy and spirit and life and the reason for being the core of the universe, me, standing here in flesh and blood. So his point is in verses one and two, this timeless, eternal creator of all things had a visible, audible, tangible flesh and blood appearing. And this is important. Why is it important? If your payment is death, what's required of you, death for your sins, the wages of sins is death, eternal separation from God, the second death. If your payment is to die, right? And God says, you know, I want to pay that for you. How does God make a payment that requires him to cease living? It's only one way. He needs a heartbeat. He needs a heartbeat. So he's going to climb through the womb of one of his fallen creatures and live the perfect life for them and pay the perfect penalty of being able now to die in their place. He can pay it now because he has a body. John, the, the Gnostics were saying he didn't have a body. That's the whole point of getting that John is trying to make here. So John's saying, listen, he had a body. We ate with him. He liked certain kinds of food. He got tired. He slept. He cried. He laughed. He hugged. He had a family. He was a human being so that he could sweat drops of blood so that he could cry loud cries, so he could bruise and swell up with contusions because, trust me, you're not going to do that to God in all his glory. He needed a form which could be punished. He needed a back so it could be flailed open. He needed hands so they could be nailed to a cross of wood that he himself created. He needed feet. He needed bone so that the nail could pierce and go through. He needed a face to receive the spittle from the markers. He needed a scalp so the crown could pierce. He needed to be the sponge for human penalty of sin. And Isaiah 53, the Lord laid upon him the sin offering, the iniquity, the sin of us all. And through his wounding, we are healed. But that could have never happened if he were just an angel or an apparition or a, a ghost figure that the Gnostics were saying. God himself cannot die. But God, the God-man can, but he can't stay dead three days later because he's God. He rose up by his own power. He said, the Father will raise me up, but he said, I have the authority to raise up my own life. John chapter 10. He is the God-man. And so verses 1 and 2 tells you, you've got a pulse, then you've got Jesus who is both 100% God and 100% man. And it's him. And this same Jesus will come back again. 
That's why it says, the angels say in Acts chapter 11, verse 1, this same Jesus will come back. Chapter 1, verse 11, by the way. <laughs> I just inverted that. I just saved you. You're like, I wasn't paying attention anyway. Well, now you are. <laughs> this same Jesus. So no, no, no naming other names. It's the one with the scars. You, you, you'll recognize him, really. And he's got a banner on him. And written on his thigh, it says, the word of God. When he comes in glory, that's who's coming, the Logos, the God of the universe in human form. I just, I just, can I pause and just say, wow, that they got to live with the Logos in a body? that you got to, to look at him and go, he created the whole universe. <laughs> that one, right there, touch him. You know, what did it feel like to touch him? Or like, uh, I mean, John. John just snuggles into him at the Last Supper. He's reclining into him on the couch. Why, wouldn't you want to? I mean, you're going like, whoa, this guy's right now, he's spinning the world's in orbit. It's just what I just snuggle in there. Oh, my word. I mean, high-fiving the Lord. Like, wow, well, way to make those demons cast out. Yeah, high five, low five, you know, or, or would you do this with them, double pound? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you think that they lost their humanity, that they all walked around like medieval paintings, you know, like this. You don't think there was horseplay around that lake and see... Come on, Peter? Peter's crazy. Of course, I wouldn't say that to his face right now because I am a peon and he is a Bible hero. But okay, can we move on? Verses one and two, we got a pulse. We got this Jesus who's the God man. Verses three and four might, might really surprise you that it's a test for life, fellowship with God's people. Hmm. All right. So check for breathing, respiration, church, relationships with Christians. Here's the paraphrase. Okay, so we're bringing this message. We're proclaiming him, the word of God, the life. And we've seen and heard and touched him. We proclaim to you that you can, now here's his point, have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God. This is what our joy is all about. This is where our excitement comes from. So here's a, one of my favorite commentators. John begins to show us, listen to this, that coming to know Jesus will mean life in community with others who share the same experience in Christ. To have relationship with God mandates a shared relationship with his people. Now, the word fellowship there, as you, most Christians know, is a very common word that gets tossed around a lot in the Greek koinonia. And it really means to have in common with, to be in common. And so uh, in verses 3, 6, and 7, koinonia means this close sharing, this association, this communion, intimacy, friendship, this close relationship, having our hearts and lives inextricably knit together with him and one another. Now, 
It's an amazing thing because the idea of church and fellowship isn't always highly valued. And what I hope you get out of these few moments now as we look at the point, he's saying the whole reason I'm telling you about him is for us to be in fellowship. Well, that's a little bit different than how we think of church. We tend to think of church as kind of flat, just kind of one-dimensional. Did you go to church today? What happened in church? Just like I go, I listen, I leave. Church. Uh, This mystical, supernatural gathering and knitting together of your heart and my heart and our hearts, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us... How to pray, Jesus, and he says, well, the first word's really important, our, and it comes against this kind of devaluation of church, and right now, church is, you know, on the decline. Now, if there are good reasons for that, then so be it, but if not, don't let the world's lone ranger mentality and the God of individualism come against what is clearly stated in the Bible. When you are saved, you are placed in relationship in God's church, period. If you do not have fellowship with God's people, you are not in fellowship with God. That is not my sentence. That is from F.F. Bruce. To be out of fellowship with God's people is to be out of fellowship with God himself. Now, I was on an errand the other day with our business administrator, and we met somebody. We were talking about the church. I don't know how it came up. It's just one of those things. (laughs) And this person said, Oh, I'm a Christian. Where do you fellowship at? What? As soon as you don't know what the word fellowship is, that's a, well, one, it's a bad sign. All right. Number two, where do you go to church? <laughs> I don't go to church. Oh, but you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Yes, of course, but I don't need church. How many times have I heard that in 32 years that it's okay to believe in God, but I have nothing to do with his people? Sign of respiration, shallow, shallow respiration. We've got maybe something, but not really, because you do not have fellowship with God without the church. It is a theological impossibility. God's life is manifested through the gathering and corporate worship and walking and relationships of his people. That is how he does things. You know, remember when Peter started preaching the gospel and on the day of Pentecost and those days to come, and, and the Lord, listen to how it's phrased. Each day, the Lord added to the fellowship, to the church, those who were being saved. Part and parcel of being saved is he adds to the fellowship when he opens your heart and unites your spirit with his, you are connected with everybody in the family at once, the universal capital C church. There's no other way. There is no other way. That is how it happens. It's just a wonderful thing as well. 
You know, let me just uh, tell you from my point of view, and you all have a hundred stories like these, didn't grow up in church, and I've told you several times my testimony. At 19 years old, I'm in a disco, and I had been hearing the gospel preached to me, but I hadn't connected the dots, and I had no intention on. The Lord unraveled me inside this disco 31 years ago, June 3rd, 1979, whatever it was, I walked out, I had an epiphany, boom, I was this person. I, I got it. I got heaven and hell, Jesus, the cross, the devil. I got the whole download. It was just boom, it happened. Uh, the only other Christian I knew was my father, this Jewish renegade from Brooklyn, living at the hotel he managed, uh, chain smoking and studying the Bible. That's the only Christian I knew. So I said, well, I need to move in with him because how do you live a Christian life? I knew I couldn't continue as I was living. So I moved out in four days, I'm out. And I'm in my parents' hotel they're managing in Santa Cruz, California. I'm laying on their couch. I'm immobilized. I went from that whole world to now I'm a Christian. I'm a total believer. I'm born again. I get it. I'm hugging a King James Bible. I'm having nightmares all night long. I won't go outside. I'm afraid of people. I'm afraid of the earth opening up and swallowing me and sending me to hell. That was my biggest fear. I was crazy. So my father said, we've got to get you some help. So my father knew, you've heard the story, my father knew a man who stayed at the hotel who was a pastor in Santa Cruz, and his name was Steve. And he was attending New Life, he pastored at New Life Center. So my father called information and got the number for Christian Life Center instead of New Life Center and asked for Pastor Steve. Well, it was the wrong church and it was the wrong Steve, but they had a youth pastor named Pastor Steve. So they put him through to Pastor Steve. He said, hey, I'm a youth pastor, I'll be right over. So he came in, laid hands on me, uh, Gave me Bible verses, took me out of the hotel and walked me down the street, talked to me, prayed over me, and he said, come to our church. When I walked through the doors of that church and saw 300 me's in the room with their whole experience with the Lord, everywhere I turned, I was like, I just, my eyes just opened and I found the Lord and, and I went from death to life and dark to light. And they're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> it happened to us too. <laughs> I'm like, you're kidding me. And I, I was so happy. It was like, I, I found home. I found how to be healed. And, and people would give me scriptures and talk to me and counsel me. And I started to get confident. And then God started showing me my calling through, through church, through communion. So one day, uh, the pastor said, you know, you got a lot of stories. You should share some Sunday night. I'll, I'll let you share a little bit. And so I went into his office, and I said, hey, you want me to share? Really? And he said, yes. I said, how long should I prepare? He goes, the whole service. I said, you want me to preach? And he said, yes, absolutely. You could see. I mean, you can tell. God created you for that. I was like, really? <laughs> Seriously? I said, I fucked speech in high school. I just, I can't, I, I can't do it. He gave me a Sunday night service. I stood up there 
Having never preached in my life, I had a text. I had three points, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and this happened. Because of the church and God moving with gifts and insights and love and life and guidance and my whole life, my, the trajectory of my life because of the church, not the one-dimensional, I went to church, the living, breathing, vibrant, supernaturally, Holy Ghost-filled people knitted together, tied to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are all knit together. And now local bodies and how that all appears, it changes over the years. And it's not wrong to leave churches and find churches where you feel the Lord is leading you, but do so reverently. Whenever I meet somebody who has a low view of church, there also is a low degree of devotion. There's a a, a measurable difference in their spiritual health. Ask yourself, the people you know, oh, I haven't been to church in 18 months. Are they sharing the gospel? Are, you, are they shining for Jesus? Are they waking up and having their devotions? Are they spurring on one another for love? No. The guys and gals that don't go to church very often, what? They're not doing very well. They're weak. They're not going anywhere fast. Are they saved? You know, that's up to God. John is going to say, you love God, you love his people. You're in fellowship with him, you're in fellowship with them. Are you kidding me? So what I say to people who say, I don't need to be going to church to be saved. I say, but isn't being around other Christians just so wonderful? Well, I never thought of it that way. And, and then you get to hear a little Bible teaching to kind of keep you on the straight and narrow path, kind of build you up, because this world's crazy. I mean, hardly anybody has faith, huh? Yeah, hardly anybody has faith. Wouldn't it be nice to be surrounded by all these people who think the same way you do and have faith in God? Oh, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, of course you didn't. <laughs> because who do you think hates this? Who do you think hates the gathering of God's people in Koinonia and fellowship where his gifts are working and your faith is being built up and some of you are going to enter eternal life perhaps today because of a message that happened today and the love that was shown you and the gifts and abilities of other people in this place. Who hates that more than the devil? So who spins the low negativity thing about church more than anybody else? The devil. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But as you see the day approaching, ramp it up more. Connect and share and love and encourage one another. Uh, sharpening each other, confessing your faults to one another. It's, uh, God is a we thing, not a me thing. And so it's just a wonderful privilege and joy. Don't hear me saying, go to church more, church, church, church. 
you're already in church. Why would I be telling you that? I'm preaching to the choir, right? What I am saying is elevate your understanding of the supernatural privilege and awesomeness of meeting together in fellowship with the living God and his people and come expecting, not just on Sundays, but in your relationships throughout the week with God's people and watch what God can do in koinonia, in fellowship. And then you'll have both pulse because you're connected to the God-man and you'll have nice, steady, healthy respiration because you're growing according to God's ordained way of fellowshipping together in corporate worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these opening verses. It's so simple, but there's a lot of profound principles and thoughts behind these simple words. And so may your spirit just fan into flame these ideas, and, and some of them so contrary and kind of challenging to our own nature and, and what we've been fed in this culture. So help us not be defensive, but to receive not just these truths, but the black and white truths that are coming at us, even as we study your word. We thank you for all your good blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.